side by the movable window, I could see that she was amused by my infatuation, the way my interest in the papers had become a fixed idea. One would think you expected to find in them the answer to the riddle of the universe, she said. And I denied the impeachment only by replying that if I had to choose between that precious solution and a bundle of Geoffrey Aspern's letters, I knew indeed which would appear to me the greater boon. She pretended to make light of his genius, and I took no pains to defend him. One doesn't defend one's God. One's God is in himself a defense. Besides, today, after his long comparative obscuration, he hangs high in the heaven of our literature for all the world to see. He is part of the light by which we walk. The most I said was that he was, no doubt, not a woman's poet. To which she rejoined, aptly enough, that he had been at least Miss Bordereau's. The strange thing had been for me to discover in England that she was still alive. It was as if I had been told Mrs. Siddons was, or Queen Caroline, or the famous Lady Hamilton, for it seemed to me that she belonged to a generation as extinct. Why, she must be tremendously old, at least a hundred, I had said. But on coming to consider dates, I saw that it was not strictly necessary that she should have exceeded by very much the common span. Nonetheless, she was very far advanced in life, and her relations with Geoffrey Aspern had occurred in her early womanhood. That is her excuse, said Mrs. Prest, half sententiously, and it also somewhat as if she were ashamed of making a speech so little in the real tone of Venice, as if a woman needed an excuse for having loved the divine poet. He had been not only one of the most brilliant minds of his day, and in those years when the century was young there were, as everyone knows, many, but one of the most genial men, and one of the handsomest. The niece, according to Mrs. Prest, was not so old, and she risked the conjecture that she was only a grand-niece. This was possible. I had nothing but my share in the very limited knowledge of my English fellow-worshipper John Cumner, who had never seen the couple. The world, as I say, had recognized Geoffrey Aspern, but Cumner and I had recognized him most. The multitude today flocked to his temple, but of that temple he and I regarded ourselves as the ministers. We held, justly as I think, that we had done more for his memory than anyone else, and we had done it by opening lights into his life. He had nothing to fear from us, because he had nothing to fear from the truth, which alone at such a distance of time we could be interested in establishing. His early death had been the only dark spot in his life, unless the papers in Miss Bordereau's hands should perversely bring out others. There had been an impression about 1825 that he had treated her badly, just as there had been an impression that he had served, as the London populace says, several other ladies in the same way. Each of these cases Cumner and I had been able to investigate, and we had never failed to acquit him conscientiously of shabby behavior. I judged him perhaps more indulgently than my friend. Certainly, at any rate, it appeared to me that no man could have walked straighter in the given circumstances. These were almost always awkward. Half the women of his time, to speak liberally, had flung themselves at his head, and out of this pernicious fashion many complications, some of them grave, had not failed to arise. He was not a woman's poet, as I had said to Mrs. Prest in the modern phase of his reputation, but the situation had been different when the man's own voice was mingled with his song. That voice, by every testimony, was one of the sweetest ever heard. Orpheus and the Minads was the exclamation that rose to my lips when I first turned over his correspondence. Almost all the Minads were unreasonable and many of them insupportable. 
It struck me, in short, that he was kinder, more considerate than in his place, if I could imagine myself in such a place, I should have been. It was certainly strange beyond all strangeness, and I shall not take up space with attempting to explain it, that whereas in all these other lines of research we had to deal with phantoms and dust, the mere echoes of echoes, the one living source of information that had lingered on into our time had been unheeded by us. Every one of Aspern's contemporaries had, according to our belief, passed away. We had not been able to look into a single pair of eyes into which his had looked, or to feel a transmitted contact in any aged hand that his had touched. Most dead of all did poor Miss Bordereau appear, and yet she alone had survived. We exhausted in the course of months our wonder that we had not found her out sooner, and the substance of our explanation was that she had kept so quiet. The poor lady on the whole had had reason for doing so, but it was a revelation.